Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking's bi-weekly podcast. I'm here with Fine Woodworking Creative Director Mike Pekovich. Hey, guys. Associate Editor Anissa Capsalis. Hello. And Michael Fortune's evil twin, Jeff Rose. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your host, Ben Strano. If you have questions you'd like us to answer on the show, send them into shoptalk at taunton.com. You can also use the voice memo app on your phone and email us a 30-second audio recording, or you can leave a voicemail by calling 203-304-3456. Any links or articles we mention will be on this episode's show notes page, which can be found at shoptalklive.com. And lastly, if you're watching on YouTube, please go ahead and click that thumbs up button now. So, um, are you going to be at Bob's? Connecticut Valley School of Woodworking Open House. I am. That's September 8th? I think so. It's either that or September 4th. I can't remember which one now. What's the date today? Today's the 7th. Yeah. Of August. Of of August. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just wondering when is is this going to air? This is going to air the 17th of August. Okay. So yeah, in a couple of weeks I'm going to be doing a... That's not true. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think so. This is going to air like the week before. Yes. So why do you ask? Are you wondering? Well, because I want people to know that you're going to be at Connecticut Valley School of Woodworking at Bob's Open House. I'll probably be there too, but no yes. one cares about that. Oh. But you'll be there. I will be there. You know what I'll be doing there? Can we go? If I have time. Oh, because. Oh, here we go. Let this one begin. <laughs> I know what you're going to be doing there. What? Book signing. Book signing. Yay. And credit cards swiping with my little square on my iPad. <laughs> zip, 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 zip. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, so my book, uh, unbeknownst to me, has been sitting in our distribution center for who knows how long. And I have not seen it, so I'm a little bit nervous to say it. And it's However, not eating you up inside at it's all. It's killing it? me. So the first public unveiling of my book will be at Connecticut Valley Open House. Um, I should have a workbench and a big old stack of books and a big old Sharpie. If you want me to sign it, I will. Um, I'm just really looking forward. I hope it looks good. And then if it does, I'm really looking forward to just finally, finally, finally seeing it after like two years of work. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's pretty yeah. frustrating. I bet that it's, <laughs> that it's that here. close. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, you mean, oh, yeah, they're there. You just can't. Oh, do you want to see it? Yeah. No, <laughs> never mind. That's fine. So yeah, I'll be there. And you'll be there? I think so. I, okay. Yeah, I was planning on it, and then I realized that I'm away for a week, like a week or two after. So yeah. we'll see if I can get away. Cool. Huge, even better than a book signing is they have a huge, huge used tool sale out in the back parking lot. And Bob oh. is like, 30 tables planned or something? This is not, oh, it's like all really expensive, nor is it flea market. There's nothing really you want to buy. All of the stuff you want to buy and all of it is really, really reasonably priced. Like you can probably get an old Stanley number four or five in good condition, maybe put a new blade in it for, oh, I don't want to say like 40 or 50 bucks, but it's like that. And it's attached to a woodcraft. So if you need a new blade, you go into the woodcraft, buy the blade, boom. Get your Ron Hawk. You get to go. Yeah. So yeah, tool sale. Yeah, yeah. Bob's Bob's open house is always a, a fun thing. So, yeah. and Bob Van Dyke will be there. I think I bet you Mike Michelli will be there. Tico Voigt is usually there. Okay. Um, um, Matt Bickford is usually there. Mm-hmm. Matt Cianci is often there. Will he be sharpening saws? I don't know what he's. He talks a lot. He's just gonna be yakking. 
Really? He's a chatty guy. I don't think he likes me then because he's pretty quiet around me. <laughs> really? <laughs> I think it's just you. No, Matt, who uh, teaches saw making and sharpens hand saws, he sharpens all my hand saws. Um, I think he's usually there. I'm not sure what he's up to. Yeah. And like you said, a lot of tool vendors. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, September 8th or 4th or I don't know, one of those days. September 8th. It's a Saturday. Yeah. All right. Um, I... I'm ready to admit that the toolbox that I made a year ago sucks. And what fashion? It's just awful. It looks nice. It functions, but the form factor is awful. And mm. I've I feel the need to like publicly come out and say that was a an obscene failure. This is the toolbox I was admiring with you in the shop like yeah. a month ago. Yeah. Because it it's fine. It it opens up on both sides. Got a little tool strapped in place. Yep. All little everything's held in place with leather, which that wound up being less than convenient. The problem is opened up, it is so large hmm. that there's no good place to put it. And your argument was, well, yeah, in this shop it's annoying. And in, in the fine woodworking shop, it doesn't fit and it takes up too much room. But it turns out at my home shop, it's annoying and takes up too much room and doesn't fit as well. I'll take it. Can you put it on a like, little rolling cart or it's something? It's on a little rolling cart, and it's still annoying. Wow. Oh. What? Well, first of all, I don't think you're the, a good judge of it because I think that toolbox is great. Well, thank you. And I'll take it if you're going to make a new one. But also, I was shooting in California last week, and I was shooting a really cool kind of dovetail joint with Lou Kern and he had on a rolling little cart he had i have a photograph of it on my camera okay. or on my phone that we can attach to the to the um the notes at the bottom of the thing but he had an IKEA chest of drawers this little thing with these shallow drawers i'm telling you i i I know nobody else can see it, but I'm going to try and actually multitask and do two things and talk and talk about it and tell you it was really brilliant. It has these small drawers, and he it's light, and it's perfect for hand tools of all kinds. Is it actually from Ikea? It's a, he's pretty sure it's from Ikea. He has all the drawers numbered. Isn't that amazing? It's So it, it looks like a very narrow yet tall Correct. Wow. set of drawers. Um, how tall is that? I mean, it, it looks like maybe... Over it's about foot tall. it's about three to four feet. Okay, and it has eighteen drawers. Wow, is it top heavy? Uh, no, it didn't seem to be. I was rolling that thing out of my way all day, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if he he's really smart. So if it was top heavy, maybe he did something about weighting the bottom. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I'm, I mean, I'd be all about buying something from IKEA for. For the purpose of it storing things. It never would have pictures. occurred to me, but yeah. this is a really nice chisels, saws, mm-hmm. planes can fit in the in the deeper ones. Wow. Hmm. But That's I'll take your toolbox if you're making a new one. Uh, I, I My plan was to just keep it for if I take a class and need to take my tools somewhere and just use it for that so it would be in everyone else's way at a class. Mm. Um, but... And especially now that I've got my tools like in a rack over the window, I need to build a little plane cabinet with some hand saw storage and then I'll be good. But okay. like a nice simple one. Okay. Not like like yours. Which is beautiful. 
And one of Taunton's best-selling plans of all time. Huh. All right. So. A lot of good ideas in there. You can just take it and modify it. Yeah. Take what you need. <laughs> uh, all right. Anybody have anything else before we get to the questions? All right. Silence. Golden. All right. Question one is from Ray. I recently scooped up a six-inch Delta joiner with steel knives. I am sharpening the knives myself with sandpaper and a granite slab. My question is, how can you tell when it's time to pull the knives and freshen them up? Is there a specific board foot limit or a time limit? Uh, two criteria. How much is it beating up your wood? And is it uh, really loud? And does the front end of the board sort of flap up and down as you try to go across it? <laughs> Seriously, like, and then you're really dull. Um, the other thing, if you're getting tons of tear out and curly wood and that kind of stuff. And the main thing for me is I end up getting nicks in my joiner knives. And oh, so, so you get a nick before they actually are dull. Yeah, definitely. Um, so on the, on the bottom of your board, once you join it, if you feel, you know, a couple of really light nicks, it's no big deal. If you get a big old heavy nick, yeah, it's kind of not big of a deal. <laughs> get a couple heavy nicks and you really have to like what happens is you you go through it and you have these ridges on the bottom so when you joint it again it's not sitting flat on your infield table of your joiner it's actually kicked up by those little ridges and if they're off center you end up planing a bevel onto your board because of those unless you scrape those ridges off after every single mm-hmm. pass which i keep a card scraper in my apron pretty much for that task but yeah when it gets too cumbersome usually it's the nicks that drive me to spend half an afternoon changing my joiner knives because i hate doing it i feel like a six inch joiner would be harder to tell like at the shop we have a 16 inch joiner so it's like oh i'm just gonna pass a 14 inch board over it and you know when the knives are dull because John Tetra was in there before you, or <laughs> passing barnwood, dirt covered barnwood over everything. But um, it's it's just it's a lot harder to push the board over. Yeah, definitely. Um, but that's a really wide board, so there's a lot more friction being made. Uh, a six inch joiner. I've I've never operated a six inch joiner. I will be soon because that's what I have at home. But do you do you have a segmented head on your joiner? Mm-hmm. Um, and your yeah, jointer you do too? That's that's why you're just sitting there nice and quiet. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. This isn't a, a problem <laughs> I have. I do. But, you know, the, the question, is there a board footage or timeline? You can't, I don't think you can really quantify it by that because yeah. you're running different types of wood over it. and Yeah, if you're in you your know, shop like, every day. And, yeah. As opposed yeah. to, I only get out there once a week or, right. you know, so I don't, I don't, that doesn't seem realistic to me to try and set a board footage or a time amount. You kind of have to go by feel the way you do with a table saw blade. Yeah. Um, you can hear it. You can see the results. You can, yeah. you can kind of feel it like you're talking about. Table saw blade's really obvious by feel to me more than anything. More of a drag to it. Yeah. Yeah. And more burn, burn and burning. It's, it's never, it's, you know, it sneaks up on you. And then when you change your blade, it's like, oh, I should have done yeah. this. <laughs> months ago i run tons of white oak on my eight inch joiner at home i don't think i've changed those blades in the last year and they're fine like i said i've got i got a medium small nick and a small nick at the moment so i am sort of having to i should be scraping the bottom end board after every pass i don't always now you have 
Don't you have like the interchangeable blades? Kind of, yeah. Yeah, it's an old Delta 8-inch joiner where it used to have the springs and the knives and you had to have this magnetic jig and set it, then reset it, reset it. I change it out with for some disposable knives that come with a knife holder and you set the knife holder um, to a certain height and then your blades just pop in and you can uh, flip the blades over because they're two-sided and or change them out because it's always registering off the knife holder and so the knife you don't have to like reset mm-hmm. everything do you sharpen them or you just throw them out? No, you just throw them out <laughs> because they're it's dependent on the width of the blade I mean that's so you can't sharpen oh, okay. those because it'll change the height of the blade. Okay, so yeah. it won't work in the jig. Right. With oh, okay. Yep. Now, if you did have sharpenable straight knives, would you send them out to sharpen? Oh yes. Or always. would you do them yourself? I sharpen mine once, and I wouldn't do it again. Because um, on an eight-inch joiner knife, I mean, it's that's pretty wide, and it needs to be really, really, really flat. I was using this weird kind of jig where it's sort of the blade clamps in, and there's like a little. A little wheel or something on the opposite end to sort of allow you to kind of sharpen it roughly flat. I think it worked okay, but that's one of those things I tend to send out. Yeah, it's it's not expensive to get them sharpened. I feel no. I feel like it's fifteen dollars. Well, the time thing. Yeah, like if you have two sets and then you're dull and you go to put the your fresh set in and you realize that's been dull for <laughs> yeah. 6 months and now you have two dull sets that's what kills me because if i'm you know if i'm down without a joiner for a few days waiting for them to be sharpened or a week that's a bummer yeah yeah well so we don't have a good answer for you but mike nix is first and anisa drives a cadillac <laughs> <laughs> And I've only ever worked on a 16-inch joiner, so I'm not going to complain either. All right. So uh, question number two is in three parts because we had almost back-to-back-to-back three questions on the same subject. So I figured we might as well knock them all out in one fell swoop. So um, they're all about fuming. And I thought it might be a good idea to explain fuming first. Um, fuming as in fuming white oak is a technique that I don't know if Gustav Stickley originated it, but, um, he used it, um, as a way of coloring oak. He was actually, and I kind of found this out quite a bit later, he's actually trying to mimic the look of English brown oak using American white oak. Hmm. Um, and then when I actually started working with English brown oak, it's like, no, man, you're not even close. (laughs) This is completely different wood. But, um, Oak has a really, really high tannin content, and um, the tannins react. Number one, it reacts to iron and turns things black really, really quickly. Um, But it also reacts to ammonia fumes, and it it darkens the wood through the reaction of the tannins. So, um, yeah, you basically somehow put your furniture in the vicinity of um, a concentration of ammonia fumes, and it will turn it colors after a certain amount of time. So usually you make a little tent with a little um, wooden frame and and tacked plastic around it. Um, Kevin Rodell wrote an article on doing that. Um, A lot of times I'll just get um, like a a plastic drop cloth and get my furniture in there um, and sort of drape it over and just kind of weight it down with wood scraps around the edges. I used to use like the 28% um, really heavy-duty blueprint ammonia, which is nasty, nasty stuff. 
Um, I've since switched to janitorial strength ammonia, which is 10%, uh, which isn't as noxious, but it's still more concentrated and more effective than regular household ammonia, which is 3%. Can you buy it locally? Ace Hardware. Okay. Yeah. So, so just go to a hardware store and they'll go have the Ace, janitorial. Ace Hardware store. Okay. It's like it has to be Ace Hardware. I don't know. True Value doesn't count? No. All right. <laughs> no. <laughs> if you work um, at a True Value, let us know. If they have it, yeah. If you're out there, wow, we sell janitorial strength ammonia, let me know. Yeah. <clears throat> we'll give you a good plug. Um, so, yeah, uh, and it, that, it depends on the weather, humidity, temperature, all that good kind of stuff, the amount of tann- tannins in the oak. Um, I will fume anywhere from two hours to get just a really sort of light golden color to overnight if I'm looking for like a deeper, richer brown. Hmm. Okay. All right. So we have three questions. And the first one is from Chris. I've heard that it's important to ensure all pieces come from the same tree in order for consistent color matching when fuming with ammonia. How do you do that if you're buying from a lumberyard instead of a private sawmill? My lumberyard has stacks of white oak, but it's impossible to ensure they come from the same tree. Have you ever noticed a difference between... Yeah, ammonia, I mean, just like anything else, I mean, the ideal is to get all your wood from the same log. That's like... Ideal. Ideal. Yeah, how often does that happen? Not that often for me. Um, and then also because the different, the varying tannin contents in different logs, you are going to get different colors based on, you know, fuming different boards. So like anything else, I mean, the reality is you're probably going to be working um, with boards from different logs within a piece. And I think what's important is just to get the, the like pieces from the same board. So if you're doing a table, get four, your four legs from the same board, get all of your aprons out of a single board. If you can, you know, get your top on a smaller table from pieces of the same board, then at least even though the colors are going to be slightly varied, um, there's going to be a logic to it. Mm-hmm. That's what I do with any any wood, whether I'm fuming or not, is I try to be strategic about um, grouping like pieces and trying to get those out of the same board if I can. And at the lumber yard, a lot of times you can identify, you know, a couple, three boards that definitely came were sawn from the same log. Mm-hmm. Look at the end grain, the width. Um, look at any defects like knots that'll transfer from one board to the other. Um, chances are, if it's a fresh stack you're going through, um, you're at least going to be able to get a couple sets of match boards. That's typically I'm pretty lucky. And if I'm if I see a bunch of match boards, I will buy them even if I don't need them for that project, just because I'm going to be able to put them to use in a project later on. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were up at Kevin's shooting the bed Mm -hmm. i remember him mentioning that the 12 quarter bed posts Mm -hmm. what you were you were gonna say something no god well the 12 12 quarter bed posts do not fume as well as the rest of the bed or something what did he do about that do you remember or did he just not worry about it I think he's he was talking exactly about what we're talking about here. Yeah. And he had mentioned that he'll he'll vary the times that he's fuming something if he can because I don't know if you recall we were working with a bunch of different props but we were also working with the actual bed. Mm-hmm. And he didn't he didn't glue some of the pieces up for us. We kind of I don't know if it's okay, but I'm going to say this. He kind of fudged it 
in the in the glue up because he knew that he had to fume them separately. He had to fume. I think it was the post longer or not mm-hmm. as long as the the other parts. I, re- I remember yeah. there there being some variable about that, and I yeah. couldn't remember if he just said, like like what you were saying, the posts at least will match because they're probably from the same board. But um, you're right; he didn't glue those up so that he could fume them separately. Right. So he yeah. would again. I don't remember if he was fuming them for less time or more time, but he was going to try and match the two different. Um, Batches of oak. Cool. Mm-hmm. I, I there was a couple of stories about fuming that came out of that. Where uh, the U-Haul truck? The U- <laughs> you tell it. You're going to tell it. There. No, that, that's it. I think he, Mike was actually there for it, right? No, but I've heard. About You've it. heard yeah. the story too that he just rented a U-Haul truck to fume in the U-Haul truck, and he just <laughs> put all the pieces in the back. It was a huge job, I yeah. guess. He put them all in the U-Haul truck, put the ammonia in, and closed the door and went back, I think, the next day or something. Yeah. That's brilliant. It yeah. It would work. Or, or, and then I also asked him um, when he fumes in a shop because, you know, it's a communal area. You know, oh, it's a shared, yeah. shared building. And and he hooks up an exhaust hose to a shop vac. Yeah. Sticks that under the tent when it's time to get rid of the ammonia fumes. Right. Or you know, takes takes the input hose. Are these the right terms? The the input to the vac puts that in the tent, sticks the exhaust hose out the window to exhaust the, the oh, ammonia okay. fumes outside. And it's like that's brilliant, you know, because you don't want to open that up in this small area and just let it go. Right. And so the, the people at the Thai restaurant upstairs don't mind at all. <laughs> I may have used the Fine Working Shops dust collector to excavate ammonia fumes from a project I had done in there. Maybe. But statute of limitations <laughs> have long passed. <laughs> but it works really well. And I've been like, well, it's not flammable. It can't, it's not going to do anything. And our dust collector is like in this little kind of room outside of yeah. the main building. It's, but it worked. It, that did work really well because I was okay. using the really smelly stuff at that time. Nice. But ammonia dissipates... Um, Really, really quickly, it it just it basically turns into water. I think. Yeah, it's like sure. I love throwing those out. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna get called. No, actually, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we never get called out on stuff like that. Never. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the second part of the question: When fuming for this is from John, when fuming, do you pre-finish panels before glue up so that they do not reveal unfinished wood during seasonal changes? If so, how do you fume the rest of the door? Or the frame and panel? Uh, kind of what Anissa said. A lot of times I'll dry fit everything and fume it. it just because it suspends all the pieces like in the air. They're not all like oh. laying things. I'll do that often because I like to pre-finish a lot of my parts before glue up just to minimize squeeze out and the effects of squeeze out. Um, and it's a lot easier to pre-finish parts than it, you know, when they're apart them together. So definitely I'll just dry fit, fume it, pull it back apart. Would you dry fit it with the panel out so that it the nah, whole thing gets fumed, no, or are you not that worried about it? The ammonia it finds its way into things quite okay. a bit. Um, it's it's not like milk paint or something where there's an nah, obvious line. No, it's yeah. not. Um, no, it's, I used to just throw a like a plastic tarp over all the parts, and I didn't even care where the tarp came in contact with hmm. the piece itself. But after a while, my imagination 
thought I saw little light areas here and there where maybe the plastic was touching. So I do a better job now. It's making sure that um, I'll just make up some really, really quick kind of weird frameish kind of a thing to kind of make sure when I put the tarp over it, it's like not touching the pieces. Mm -hmm. Huh. All right. And the third part of the question is from Vince. I am fuming white oak on a hanging shelf. My test boards look darker after 30 hours in the box, but they have a bit of a greenish hue to them. I was hoping a coat of water locks would do, would make the color a bit warmer, but it didn't quite get there. Is there another wiping varnish or maybe a dye additive that the pros would use to warm up the color? It is a problem. Um, I hit everything with a coat of garnet shellac, um, which will warm it up, and then hit it with water locks, which is the most amber-colored of the wiping varnishes. So that gives it a warmer tone as well. And garnet shellac, I mean, you're buying that in flake form, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that will do it. Um, then the other thing I can do is um, you can get asphaltum, otherwise known as gilsonite, otherwise known as unfibered roofing tar from home centers. You can buy it in art supply stores as an acid resist for um, etching plates. It's, it's and you basically have to get a robin's feather. It's basically and- <laughs> tar. It's like thick, goopy tar. It's one of the uh, ingredients in traditional stains and stuff. Um, but it is soluble in... Um, paint thinner so i'll like put a glop of um, asphaltum in a jar fill it halfway up with um, uh, mineral spirits or turpentine or paint thinner and to dilute it and then i have like this it's basically like this really kind of dark stain but i tone my water locks with that i'll add that to my water locks okay and it'll just give it a really subtle sort of a nice brown tone to the water locks that does two things. It warms it up a little bit. It also unifies boards that have been sort of slightly um, mismatched in terms of the darkness from the ammonia. I'm not selectively staining this and that, but I find like an overall tone on top of everything will kind of harmonize everything. Mm. So and You had some dye recommendations, right? Mm-hmm. Coincidentally, when you sent these questions, I was with Nancy Hiller. And um, she, I was talking with her about this, and she said she never fumes. She has never fumed. Really? She doesn't fume. Um, and a while back, she and I did an article on an original arts and crafts finish. She credits two finishers, Terry Masachi and Jeff Jewett. She kind of combined their techniques and then added, think, Amber Shellac to the, to the mix. And she said it's a five-step process, um, but... She said it's really painless. And if you look at issue number, what is this, 193? Yeah. Um, There's a how-to on how to make the cabinet, but there's also an article on her finishing technique, which looks fantastic. Mm -hmm. It looks really, really good. It looks really authentic. And I watched her do it when I was shooting, and it, it was as painless as she says. Yeah. I watched her do that as well. That's right. Yeah. That must have been like your first travel shoot or something. It was. Yeah. So it's all it's it's using dye and stain mm-hmm. and shellac mm-hmm. and polyurethane and gel stain. So I mean there's but you really have control over the whole thing. You then. do. You That's do. one nice thing about using Yeah. I mean the the two basic things with a really open grain wood like oak is usually 
it's sort of basically a two-step process in terms of colorants, but it's a multi-step in terms of um, you typically have a dye that's staining the wood other than the pores. In this case, it's it's a it's a I don't know what it is. It's a some sort of a dye or, or dye stain. Um, then it gets sealed, and then she uses a glaze, which then gets into the pores themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's always that you know you're. It's kind of a two step process because you need to account for both of those aspects of the wood to get the color that you want. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And you would you had sent me a link to another article that was this in reference to this question? It was. It doesn't on the surface. It doesn't seem to really have a direct connection. It's the recreating a shaker finish. I, I, the author was Linda Coit. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened was Bexford, Chris Bexford, Christian Bexford did um, a commission where he reproduced some, some shaker pieces um, and she did the finishing. And that article is amazing because she puts in a whole toolkit and while I was there, she didn't like the way something came out. She was matching boards the way we were just talking about. She didn't like it. And before I knew what she was doing, she was getting rid of the entire finish and starting again. And I, at first I was like a little sanding shocked. off what she had done? Or? I don't even th- I think, I don't even think she sanded. I think she put a chemical on it to take it off. I can't remember what it was mm-hmm. going back a really long time, but I watched her just wipe off the whole finish and start all over again. It didn't phase her. She was completely comfortable doing that. And I think she talks about it in the article. So it's just the toolkit that she gives you is a really good way of experimenting with different things that you might not try and also gives you a little bit of courage to, if you mess up, just go back a few steps and redo it. So that it's not really specific to this question, but... This question reminded me of it, and I think it's really good stuff in there. I mean, that's that's a totally different skill set kind of furniture restoration. Oh and, yes, yeah, and because she she is an actual conservator or something, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. But this piece was not that that she was trying to reproduce this finish. She wasn't restoring anything. It was a, it it was was a, a brand new, new piece, piece of that furniture. Chris had made. Correct. Okay, yeah, that's. I mean. That's a whole that's that's bravery to just it is to just be able to just go no and start again. I, I know. Yeah, I would just keep trying to fix it and just keep adding adding band aid after band aid right. after band aid or sample board. Yeah, and you know what? In our uh, the the our question asker uses test boards, and Thank you. that's that's uh, something very very wise. It is not all of us follow that but we all preach that <laughs> we all write it in our books yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't think i've ever actually done a test board all the way through and i should but i've also really simplified my finishing these days to what it's pretty much it's it's 50 50 boiled linseed oil and just minwax polyurethane and then thin down wiped on that's it and i it's boring and it but it never fails me that's a good finish it's boring and predictable yeah. and it gets you the results that you want <laughs> it's yeah. easy you have to be a little bit patient but yeah yeah it's just like okay i'm not gonna screw this up now 
Hi, I'm Tom McLaughlin, host of Rough Cut with Fine Woodworking, sponsored in part by Felder Group. Season 8 is now airing on PBS and brings unusual, unique design inspiration and easy-to-follow project instruction to woodworkers at every skill level. Check your local listings or visit finewoodworking.tv to watch right now. Who wants to start with our smooth moves? Anissa? I don't have a really good smooth move this time. Does it have to be a recent smooth move? No. All right. So one time, a long time ago, (laughs) once upon a time, (laughs) I was getting ready for a furniture show. I was finishing up at the College of the Redwoods and there is an end of year show. And I was down to the wire finishing this piece that I had spent a couple a couple months building. And it was a coffee table with a base. And so two was pulling all nighters for the week or two beforehand. And in order to attach the base to the top of the coffee table, I had to do everything upside down on the bench. And I mean really down to the wire. The show was that day. I'm attaching the base to the to the top. It's upside down on the bench. I actually ended up having a whole pit crew trying to like attach in the different corners, which was great. We turned it around and there was a screw underneath the top when I put it upside down. And so there were a lot of people just putting a lot of pressure and the base. Ouch. And just those little screw track marks. Yeah. Yeah. It was really brutal. I may have cried. <laughs> I'm about to cry right now. I, you know, it was just, I was exhausted and I was, you know, just trying to get get to this show and get my furniture ready. And I, I, if I did cry, if I did cry, it was only for about 30 seconds. And then I, I got the iron out and I steamed it out as much as I could and tried to put a little patch in there and... I couldn't take the finish off the entire thing, so I spot finishing the one section. But you got through it. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody Uh, knew it but me because, oh, because we had a little table tent thing, and I popped it right on top. (laughs) Oh, so so like a card that said made by a music cup sailor. Right. (laughs) Slightly off center. That's a pro move right there. (laughs) There's a lesson to be learned there. Wow. Yeah, that's that's my sad. Yeah. Not so recent smooth move. I've 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 done that and that that's never quite that bad. It's always like, you know, a, a chunk of wood or something that just kind of digs in. Yeah. And that's one thing that as we go from shop to shop with all of the authors that we work with, that's one thing that I've noticed is everybody's very very careful about clearing off the bench brushing it off before they put something, you know, a top down on it or something like that. It's like, that's a really good habit to get into that I'm working on. Yeah. Um, what do you got, man? I, I've got two related, I don't know if they're smooth moves so much as like, you're not very bright. <laughs> and, um, so I am making, uh, like a little, sitting bench. Um, and instead of turning the round legs, I decided, no, I'm going to use this as, as practice. I'm going to do the whole, you know, start with a square octagon, 
using a draw knife and a, and a spoke shave, take them around. And I was milling out the pieces and I had a perfect board for it and I'm milling it out and every piece, all three of the pieces except one were um, perfectly riffs on. And the whole time I'm sitting there going, you know, this is really, you're doing this as a skill builder. This is practice. And I'm just getting more and more annoyed with myself that this one piece is flat sawn. Not realizing I'm about to make these into round pieces. <laughs> You're an idiot. There is no side to this. I'm sitting there going like, man, those are perfectly riff saw. It's going to look so great, except that one. It's going to stick out like a sore thumb. And then all of a sudden I was like, they're going to be round, you idiot. Um were you saying it out loud? Because when I walked into this room and you were by yourself today, you were talking out loud to yourself. And you, just, you just look in and froze. Such an animated way that I was looking around. Is there somebody on the ground? Is there somebody behind you? Listen, you don't need to know everything. <laughs> um, but the, the other corresponding smooth move was uh, – as I'm making these legs, I've been doing one a night just about and a whole lot of fun just, you know, on a shaving horse, two tools um, and layout lines and just go out there, you know, do a little bit of the process. Then it was too hot. So I take my shaving horse outside. It was beautiful. It was like, come on, this is the life. This is why chair making is so wonderful. But I was really having a hard time getting actual round legs. And I realized eventually that when I am taking these squares to an octagon, I, I should have been, as I'm drawing the layout lines, I'm drawing the layout lines, but I need to be taking the line and not leaving the line. Right. To get a true octagon. To get a true octagon. And the stupid thing is sometimes you trust the layout line and not your eye. Yeah. Or you trust the line and not your feeling about it. And it's like, I, as I'm taking these legs from an octagon to, to 16 sided, 32 sided round, I know I'm not making a round leg. And I did two in a row. The first one, I was like, okay, you're just, you're out of practice. It's been a year since you've done this. The second one, it was like, no, that's kind of the same. There's something going on here. There's something wrong with your process. And the third one, I, I went to the line and I look at it and I go, this isn't an octagon. All eight shot, all eight sides should be equal. Yeah. So then when I shaved the line away, all eight sides were equal. Last night took that one to round. It it's it's round. Yes. You you would never be able to tell it wasn't done on a lathe. Well, you know, whatever. But <laughs> it's round. This one is round. Cool. And it's just sometimes you just gotta trust your eye. Yeah. Or trust your eye enough to go, what the what, what's going on here? So that's my smooth move. Well, that's good. Yeah. Because you're better off now than you were before you made your smooth move. Yeah. That's the idea, right? That's the best kind. That's not the idea of making smooth moves. I think, Anissa, you're probably better off now than having glued everything to your workbench with CA glue. That keeps coming back. Yeah, it's going at me. <laughs> <laughs> And then somehow convoluting that story with the story you told about um, a friend who super glued eyelashes to their kids' eyes. And mm -hmm. somehow 
all of this is coming together into a single memory and image for me where there's glue all over your bench and eyelashes glued to your kids all at once. Router mats glued to my kids. (laughs) (laughs) And the kids are spinning a bandsaw with my hand. (laughs) Faster, faster. (laughs) Nancy Nancy met my children yesterday for the first time. And um, before she... She got there before I had to pick them up. And uh, she said, I'm so excited to meet them. And I said, well, just be careful. Matt Kenny calls them feral. <laughs> and uh, and he, he did so affectionately. But um, at, by the end of the night, she said, I could see why you would say that. <laughs> she said, it's nice that they don't have the, the childhood squashed out of them yet, <laughs> which is a euphemism for a man they're feral. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's that's a very Nancy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What do you got, Mike? Come on, you're avoiding this. Uh 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 well, okay, this is a smooth move. Um I've been working on this project sort of in between um all my classes that I've been teaching this summer. So it's something you work on, put down, work on, put down. It's this little um tea chest on a base. The chest is pretty much done to the point where I'm ignoring it and I was working on uh, the base. Um, So I followed my own advice where I did a mock-up, actually a pair of mock-ups out of pine to sort of dial in the proportions of the base. The smooth move is, you know, I got to the the second one and it still wasn't quite right, but it's like, come on, that's two mock-ups. You're ready to go. Um, So what are you going to make this base out of? And again, because it's this in-between project, um, I had the stash of eight quarter English brown oak, which I've been hoarding forever and ever. I thought that would be a cool base. So I kind of jumped from a mock up base that was still a little bit heavy and bulky, but I kind of knew where it needed to go. So it's fine, that's close enough. Let's break out the, the real wood. And then as I'm making the base out of the brown oak, I was trying to be really conservative and I just read the awesome Tim Coleman article on design where he's like, well, design doesn't, you know, you start it on paper, but the design process continues through the building. It's like, this is what I'm doing. Oh, it's Tim <laughs> Coleman's fault. And it is. And some of uh, Tim's recommendations is you leave the parts slightly oversized, you know, so you can dial it in. So it's like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave all the parts slightly oversized and I'll really dial in this design. I'm really happy with this. So I kind of got the base together. I put it aside, went to Indiana for a week, came back, and when I had a spare moment, I pulled out the the base and put that little case on it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like the blockiest, ugliest thing I've ever done. <laughs> it's like, Mike, what do you have in mind? What were you even thinking? And it's just like, well, I was just going to take it down. It's like, well, yeah, but nothing is even close to real. So... Um, that was like a really scary moment. I thought, well, okay, maybe I need to go to another mock-up. And it's just like, come on, get some woodworking done. Just do it. So it was a really scary morning where I just kind of had to trust my intuition because I kind of knew what I wanted this to eventually be and where I wanted to go. I started cutting down this brown oak, getting out my tapering jig on the table saw, taking slices and more slices and looking and cutting it down some more. And the feet originally had this really sort of over-exaggerated arch, which I thought was kind of cool. But like everybody on Instagram like hated it. And I thought, well, yeah, well, you don't, you don't know what I have in mind. But the more I looked at it, it's like, no, they're kind of right. 
So I was on the fly. I had these little feet that were still uh, rectangular that I planned to cut an arch out of. And I was just sketching directly on the foot this profile I wanted. And it's like, I think that's cool. And it's like, fine, we'll go ahead and saw it. But how do I know it's perfect? doesn't matter. Just saw it out. So um, as a as it progressed and as I got deeper and deeper into this and the fear of ruining the brown oak was sort of, it's like it's either ruined now or it's not, just keep going. It actually started to get fun um, because I really was forced to trust my intuition, my first thought, um, and working on things. And after a while, it's like, look, if this isn't perfect, you're trying so many new things here, it's at least going to be a canvas for future ideas. And um, you're learning. Yeah. So the main thing for me is like the more risks you take in building a piece of furniture, you more you have to go on the next time you build something. But it's really hard to take risks because you don't want to screw up what you're working on. So I finally got to a point um, where it's like, oh, there it is. It wasn't like done, done. There's still burn marks on everything and things weren't shaped yet. But I could like finally see that finish line of what I was aiming for. So it, it worked out well. Then I further refined it and um, – it's like the legs were – there are variations between the legs in terms of the chamfering and the curving. And rather than pick one and make all four legs the same, it's like, no, I'm leaving them different. No one's going to know. But I can look at them later on a future piece and see which leg I actually like the best and then just do four of them that way on the next piece. <laughs> so – um, yeah, so the smoother was just jumping into real word wood too soon before I had a real good idea what I was doing. And it just left me kind of hanging out to dry more than I would like once I was starting on uh, with real wood. But it turned out to be a really good experience and it's a lot of fun. And plus, this was not for a client. It wasn't for a class. It wasn't for an article. It was just for me. So yeah. it can just be whatever. You Something you had mentioned made me th- think that was like – I've been seeing on on Instagram more more commentary, more uh, criticism than there used to be. Yeah. That where people aren't necessarily asking for the criticism, and I think that that's like this weird area these days because it's like everybody's excited to show the work in progress, but it's not necessarily where it's going or where it's, you know, it's not ready for criticism yet. And I think when, when, when that gets interjected too soon, sometimes it can screw with someone's head. Yeah. And you, 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 you move them off the path that they were going. Yeah. I've been posting this in the mock-ups, you know, and just kind of having that, open dialogue sort of in the text. And I think it did provide an opening for people to have their suggestions. It's like, hmm, yeah, I don't think those feet are working for me. And it's like, oh, okay. And it kind of stuck, but I was also like, nah, I kind of know what I'm doing. And then like when I actually changed the feet um, and then there was, oh yeah, that's working a lot better for me now. It's like, <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you're feeling good about this. But it is. I mean, it's it's such a it's a public thing, but at the same time, and you feel like you're developing personal relationships with these people, and you see this piece in progress, and it's like, oh, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Oh, okay, that's good. <laughs> my so. in in my past career, I, I was I was a recording engineer, and I used to work with this one producer a lot, and he would be sitting there. He would nap on the couch in the room while I was mixing most of the time. And every couple of hours, he'd go, can I say something? I go, no. And 
he fell back asleep and you know a little bit later you go are you ready for me to talk yet i go nope and then you know eventually i go all right what do you think? He go, okay, I was really worried about where you were going with this, but you wound up fixing that. And it's like, I'm not ready yet. Please don't give yeah. me the notes yet. Because in, in this world, it was, you're thinking about the kick drum and I'm worried about the guitar, you know? So yes. it's, it's not until someone opens up the, the line of communication towards, towards uh, criticism or, creative input or whatever. How do you, how do you feel about that? Because it's an imposition if you don't want it. Right. Yeah. And even if you do want it, sometimes it's still an imposition in that, um, it's like, if you ask for it, well, the person needs to be honest. No, if you ask for it, that person should say, well, what are you thinking? I don't know. What don't you like about it? I don't like that. What do oh, you think? Yeah. So, like, what are you thinking about a solution? Well, I was thinking about doing that or this or that. You know, it's like I never say, you know what, do this and cut this here and draw it. Because the problem is, is as you're designing, I mean, the creative ego is a really, really fragile thing. Mm-hmm. By that, I mean, it's like to be able to trust your intuition and like actually act on it and do it. Um, yeah, it's a really, really tough thing. You get into that headspace. And you just got to kind of be by yourself. And so like the like getting comments from people, um, even though I had a clear idea of what I wanted to do, it was a little – it did sort of take me out of that zone. But the minute you go to someone and say this, if, if you offer them a suggestion and they start to take it, their internal compass goes away and their compass is now sort of you own that compass. It's like your – that whole decision-making process is now sort of – beholden to this outside voice and you start to trust someone else's voice more than you trust your own and it could be good it'd be fine but it kind of it it kind of tears down that that kind of flow and drive of making something so i feel like no matter what anyone says to me about anything i make my initial reaction is screw you <laughs> and then and then it takes an hour or two to settle in and sometimes i go now screw them but sometimes it's like yeah maybe and i mean usually it's from someone that i do i do trust what they say um i i have found sometimes you you're looking for criticism or ideas or collaboration and um when you don't get it, that's almost just as bad because I remember there was a table I was working on. And I feel like everybody here was like uh, afraid to like hurt my feelings. I was like, ah, this base isn't working. Everybody's like, yeah. And it's just like, and it was like, I, I wanted to like, just scream, like stop me from making an ugly table. And like, I couldn't get the, and I wound up making an ugly table, <laughs> you know? Uh, but, well, yeah. What were you feeling? What what was it that you didn't like about the table? See, that works, right? Yeah, and and th- but maybe maybe that's maybe that's the way that the communication should be delivered. Yeah. What are you thinking? What do what would you do? You know, I I, I like that idea because you're you're kind of focusing yeah the areas for criticism and the areas for input because all of design once you get that initial spark of inspiration, all of design is about working towards an absence of negatives 
it's like getting rid of everything that's wrong with it. And whether you sort of are aware of it or not, what you're really saying is getting rid of everything that is taking it away from what kind of you know you want it to be, even though you can't quite see what it is. So it's always yeah. what's wrong, what's wrong, too heavy. Okay, cut it down or I'm afraid. Well, then get a piece of wood and mock it up and yeah. then see how you like that. Um, yeah, it's always working. Yeah, getting rid of the stuff you don't want. Even design at the magazine layout, it's just about – What's wrong with it? Where's the, where's the hiccup? Where am I stalling? What piece of information isn't making sense? Or why am I moving from this picture to this picture in a layout when I should be moving down to this picture? Okay, that's broken. Let's fix yeah. that conduit of um, your train of thought. And so it's always – and then when it gets – when you get to good, it's always really, really simple and obvious. Like Oh, yeah, that's nice. It's like, yeah, because I got rid of every single thing it shouldn't have been. So I think it's more that. You know, the first thing is, what should I make? What should it look like? That's the front end. That's that spark. And if you start building before you have that sort of compass point to aim towards, then it's just like it could be this or it could be this or it could be this. But if you don't have an end point to get to, then, yeah, it can be like a million things. Mm -hmm. And all of them are sort of equal if they're neither taking you towards or away from what you're aiming for. So, But the important thing is having a, something you're aiming for. Yes. And knowing that. Yeah. And then that's the important thing. And everything else is kind of secondary. Yeah. 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 Huh. And I built a lot of things where I started building before I really knew what it was. And the decision-making was, we'll try this, we'll try this, we'll try this. Huh, well, now it's this. What do you think? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'll, you know, and it never became what it was. And sometimes you had a direct idea of kind of what it was, but then you didn't work hard enough with the mock-ups or anything. And then you're done and then you look at it and you go, huh, yeah, no, that's not <laughs> what it was, that's but it's done. So... <laughs> yeah. And I have to live with it because it needs to go in my living room. You know, and that's the worst thing. And finally you get to the point where you get this spark and you work towards and it's, it's nerve wracking. And then it's just like, oh, there it is. Like when you see it in a mock-up or a sketch or you're working towards it. And then the final product, if it – for me, it's most successful when it's just something that's familiar to me. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, there you are. That's it. And that doesn't mean like it, it's exquisite or beautiful or perfect. It just matches – what I was setting out to make. And that's, um, that's like a, a really, really um, good feeling at the end of it. That's probably the best feeling I could hope for at the end of a project is just, is it what I aim for it to be? Yeah. And then you can move on from there. When, when you were at College of the Redwoods, I would assume that that's an environment where there's like a lot of input, input a lot, a lot of, of input. collaboration. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever miss that these days? Yeah, it takes you out of the vacuum, you know, and you get not only are other people watching what you're doing and giving you input, but you get inspired by what's happening around you, too. And it gets you thinking in a way that you wouldn't have thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's an, it's an incubator. It's a, create, an, a creative incubator. Um, <clears throat> should be. Like, that's the base for reality tv show right there you put 23 people in a room together all different levels of woodworking ability ability coming in 
all this pressure that kind of builds throughout the year and it's not it's not a bad kind of pressure it's a it's a good pressure but yeah there's there's a definite benefit into being creative in a space where other people are being creative in the same in the same field but in so many different ways it's a huge luxury yeah mm. yeah i i i definitely miss that again it was in a different media or whatever but i miss that you know like everybody digging in on this one thing and like arguing about it and then coming out the end and it being better or worse for everybody's input. But it, it, it's school, especially that was something very comforting about that. And then all of a sudden you're out in the real world and you're like, Oh, it's all on me. So, uh, all right, we should move on to another question because that went far. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Question number three is from Aaron. I have seen conflicting information on edge gluing flat sawn material. Some urgently stress the importance of alternating the direction of the growth rings on the end grain. On the other hand, some very reputable sources stress the importance of orienting the board in whichever position yields the most natural grain position across the panel. Who is right? Anise is right. <laughs> always always <laughs> pretty much <laughs> how do you handle that i think aesthetics come first I, I mean there are both schools some people say it doesn't matter um and in theory if you're if the one board is going to cup if it's going to cup it's going to cup in this direction and if the other one is going to cup in the opposite direction in theory they'll hold each other in place more so than if they're all cupping in that direction. Mm -hmm. But in the end, if you're putting ugly faces together to try and make that happen, right. what's the point? That, that that summed it up pretty much as succinctly as can be. What's the point if it's ugly? And you're not sure that it's going to cup. And, and you could, there are ways you could put a cleat on the bottom. You can put a breadboard end if we're talking about a tabletop. I, I think the aesthetics are more important. And that's, like to me, the majority of proper furniture construction is going to constrain most any yes glue up like this. And you can say that keeping all of the orient faces of the boards oriented in the same direction and dealing with a large uniform cup is much easier to control than if you have oh. this sort of washboard corrugated up and down and up and down and up and down. Interesting. So, um, yeah, I, I, and Nisa's dead on. It's like aesthetics has to come first. And like planing direction is like a really close second. <laughs> <laughs> so all the grains. Like hand planing is like direction, you up, want all the grains. Yeah, oh, really? so it's lined up in the same direction for hand planing. That's nice. but And um, a lot of times those are not counter to each other. Um, and a lot of times keeping the same surface of the board facing up um, works in your favor because if you have a board and you open it up as a book match, um, that's where you're going to get alternating you know, up and downs. And then also you get something where the chatoyance or the luster is going to be exactly opposite along those grain lines. So it could be a really beautiful visual grain match. But once you have your finish on it, you have this nice satin shine. And when the light hits it, as you walk around it, half of that glue joint 
side is going to be dark, the other is going to be light. And as you walk around it, it's going to shift the opposite. So you're always going to have this light to dark luster difference at that glue line, even though the grain could be like a perfect match. And that difference in luster or chatoyance sort of runs counter to all this work you've been doing to try to make it look good to begin with. So you can use that in your intentionally for a really cool look, or if you want to avoid it, you can strategically avoid that as well. Um, and then just understand that if you're gluing up a tabletop from three boards, it's three boards. You want it to look nice, but it's never going to look like one board, and it really shouldn't. It's still three boards. So do your best and make sure the rest of the table looks really cool. I don't think I've, I've ever had the forethought to get the boards aligned for planing. I always have the, the regret that I didn't. You know, once you're planning something like, oh, I really should have thought about that this. Really that one tear yeah. out just next to the glue line. <laughs> so you flip it around and it gets just on the other side of the glue line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but I'm, I'm not there yet. But yeah, definitely. I, I do aim for aesthetics over anything. But I, uh, yeah. So uh, we obviously ran out of time for question number four, which we still have not gotten to. He's still waiting to learn how to spoon carve. That one is just going to keep getting kicked. That's kicking just the can down the road. Every, put it up front yeah, next send time. Send in a spoon yeah. carver question. Because I want to be carving a spoon. I'm supposed to be carving you a spoon. I know. And I'm obsessing over it, if you could believe that. Okay. Yeah. I can believe that. How do I get on that list? All right. You're after Barry then. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Who's before Barry? You. Okay. So just three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yours has been like, months in the making <laughs> i know exactly what i want to do just, so you're saying just anybody that wants a spoon can just email you and get on the get spoon on list. list anybody in this room can have a spoon <laughs> so jeff is number four <laughs> all right so uh let go into listener comments in regards to episode 169 from w bradburn on youtube it was my pleasure to be at mark adams school of woodworking when mr pekovich was in, was instructing there recently. Though not in his workshop, seeing his presentation on the Tuesday night was inspiring. Thank you, Mr. Pekovich, for shaking my hand that week. Mr. Pekovich? Yes, my dad was there. <laughs> All right. And then on the website, we had from user 65 our our good friend, um, just want to pass on my congrats and appreciation to Anissa for her interviews on the possibility of teaching design in the latest issue. Woodworking is so much more than tools. It's important to focus on the creative process as well. Bravo, Anissa. More, please. And then on iTunes from Stockton993, along with a five-star review, that is awesome. Love the podcast. Super informative. And I feel like I know Mike and Ben and Matt and Anissa as friends. Is that weird? Really. I look forward to each and every new release. Keep up the great work. That's not weird at all. In fact, Anissa really welcomes um, phone calls and such. So <laughs> we're going to post her phone number at the bottom of the show notes. And just give her a call. <laughs> all right. Uh, I have a recommendation this week. It's an Instagram account. It's a uh, guy, Matt White, in New Hampshire who makes uh, spoon carving knives. He makes Floyd knives and hook knives. And he posts a lot of really, really great process photos. And it's, it's one of those accounts where, where you go like, oh, that's, that's why stuff's expensive. 
because it's really hard. There's a lot of work. But uh, give Matt a follow. His, his, uh, I'll post his, a link to his account. It's Matt White underscore TMW. Cool. Anybody else have any recommendations? Kind of do. Do yeah. you? Go ahead. I may think of one. I may not. Okay. I'm, I'm thinking people should get on the Warden Eshrick Instagram page. Oh, that's cool. I didn't even know there was one. There is. They're not uh, prolific posters, but every once in a while they pop in something that's really – everything's – they show the house in different seasons and there's always beautiful photographs of stuff. They posted the other day a radio – like a radio cover that he did. Really beautiful. I had never seen it before. And they keep you up to date with some stuff that's happening in the Philadelphia area. So it's a pretty good cool. one to follow. Right up. That's cool. And you did give me an idea because I just came across Brian Boggs's Instagram page where he's like the mad scientist of woodworking. He's absolutely brilliant in his methods and problem solving. And he doesn't have a lot of posts, but the majority of them are videos that are just so insanely smart that you will become smarter for watching them. Their stories are really good. Their Instagram stories yeah. are good. I don't think you – I don't You don't do stories do very much. No. But their, their stories are like – it'll just be like, oh, look, there's like 30 seconds of somebody hollering us. And you're like, what is what is that contraption they're using? And it's just really interesting. Yeah. So, um, And I have a fine woodworking uh, archive. Ooh. We ordered like four or five of these to give away. And I've just forgotten to do it over the past year. But um, if – if you want a chance to win this archive, it's like a hundred dollar ticket right here. Wow. Only a um, hundred? I thought it was more than that. I think I think they're about a hundred, but um, well it's, worth it. It's the whole shebang on a USB drive. Uh, head on over to uh, Shop Talk Live and the show notes for this episode one seventy one and leave a comment. Thank you, Anissa. Look at you, um, and leave a comment and you know. Try and say something uh, constructive or something like that. And uh, for every comment someone posts, one one per user, will uh, will enter you to win that drawing. Or you know what? I'm not going to do the comment thing. I'm just going to have like a drawing thing embedded in the page. So uh, enter over on shoptalklive.com for that. But that's all for this episode. If you have questions you'd like us to answer on the show, send them into shoptalkatalton.com. You can use the voice memo app on your phone and send us a 30-second audio recording or call 203-304-3456. If you're watching on YouTube, click that thumbs up button. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening. Hi, Ben. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Are ready for our bit yet? Our bit? Smooth moves. Yeah. Oh, you guys have a bit? Yeah, it's like, you know, Evan Costello only. I know. We're working. Hey, Pekovich!